Dear Father in heaven, we want to see you. We want to understand what happened in 1888. And most importantly, we want to see what what you wanted to happen in 1888. Help us to learn the lessons so that we can apply those to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we are going to be start, uh, talking about 1888. And like I mentioned just before, there's a lot of material to cover and so many things that could be said. We're only going to be able to hit the highlights today. This is part of a series of classes. Last week, we talked about, uh, the title was Almost a Canaan. And we talked about some of the instances, the episodes in Adventist history where God wanted to bring us to the promised land. But for some reason, we didn't quite make it. And I believe that one of those times happened in 1888 and the time uh, that occurred right after 1888. And so this is very important for us to study and to understand what happened. It's probably one of the most famous times in Adventist history. It's also one of the most controversial. And so uh, we, will be, we will try to cover some of those things today. Before we begin that, though, I want to kind of give you a background of what was happening during those times. I always like to give you a context so that you can view these events within the historical period that they happen. And two weeks ago, Adrian talked about uh, the development of present truth that happened in the Adventist church in the decades following 1844. And this is very important context for us to know and uh, perhaps the best way to describe this is that after 1844, there were a certain system of truths that were developed, I believe led by God, that our church found. And uh, we can kind of summarize it by saying that central to our theology at that time was the sanctuary, because that explained kind of what happened in 18, uh, October 22, 1844 at, and, and afterward. And within the sanctuary, in the most holy place, there was the law, right? And within the law, there was the fourth commandment, the seventh-day Sabbath. And there were many other uh, truths that were surrounding these, but those were very, very important parts of our theology at that time. All of these truths were logical, they were consistent, with each other, and they fit together in a nice package. Uh, they had been prayerfully and painstakingly studied and thought through uh, in the years following 1844. But as we'll come to find out, there was now a group, a generation of young ministers and church workers who were not there during that process of studying out these different doctrines. They didn't have that experience right after 1844, and they were accepting these truths as they were taught, but not really having thought through them themselves. Also happening during this time, and this is important because we have to realize that in 1888, 
God was bringing not only the church, but history in general to a point of, uh, of opportunity. And so during this time in the government of the United States, there was also a movement to, to begin to uh, legislate religious laws. And uh, there was a National Reform Association that had been started precisely to lobby for this, this type of thing. They wanted an amendment that would put religious language, actually put, uh, acknowledge God in the Constitution of the United States. That would be an amendment. They also were pushing for a national Sunday law at that time. And there were several of these, but Senator Blair, who was in the Senate at that time, had introduced a bill in around 1888. It's Senate Bill 2983, and its, its object was, quote, to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, as a day of rest, and to promote its observance as a day of worship. This was the bill that actually A.T. Jones, who we'll talk about in a moment, actually went to the Senate hearings and testified, representing the Adventist viewpoint of religious liberty. And he was instrumental in, in this bill. Actually, uh, it died, and it never left committee, as far as I can tell. So, during this time, there was the opportunity for a National Sunday Law, as well as a real revival in, in the church through the messages of righteousness by faith. Let's talk a little bit about the people that were involved in the General Conference at 1888. We'll start with the two that are most famous, and that is Jones and Wagner. Now, Jones' name was Alonzo Trevier Jones. We call him A.T. Jones. And he, was, he is described as being tall and angular, He's a former soldier in the United States Army, and he had been converted while he was stationed at Fort Walla Walla. He's also described as uh, being aggressive and abrupt. He was a self-educated man, and he had a photographic memory, and that really helped him while he was testifying in front of uh, Congress, the Senate committees. At the time of 1888, A.T. Jones was 38 years old relatively young. There was also another man named Ellet Joseph Wagner, or E.J. Wagner. And he's described as being uh, the opposite of A.T. Jones. He was short and stocky. He was described as being mild and kind. He had been classically trained as a medical doctor but he had uh, turned to the ministry at that time. Both A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner uh, were living on the West Coast. They were co-editors of the Signs of the Times in 1886, and they also taught at Healdsburg College uh, and preached in the surrounding Bay Area. That's what they were doing at that time. Uh, E.J. Wagner was 33 uh, when 1888 happened. Now, both of these men began to study their Bibles and began to teach ideas that were different 
than the traditional Adventist ideas at that time. For A.T. Jones, he began to study Daniel chapter 7. The ten horns that are listed there uh, represent tribes that, uh, that William Miller had studied and come up with a list of who those tribes might be. A.T. Jones studied those, those same tribes and he came to the, con- the conclusion that one of those tribes was the Alemanni. And he felt that they better fit the description than the Huns, which was the traditional Adventist thinking at that time. So he began to teach this at Healdsburg College and also publish articles about this in the Signs of the Times. E.J. Wagner also began to study, except he was studying the book of Galatians. And specifically, he was studying the, uh, the law in Galatians. If you have your Bibles with, with you, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, and you'll see what E.J. Wagner was studying. Can someone read that? Do we have a microphone? The text is Galatians 3, verse 24. But since we d- I don't see the microphone, perhaps, perhaps I should read that for the sake of time. I should turn to it. Okay. Galatians 3, verse 24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So you can see here that the law is, is vitally connected to, right, to justification by faith. And E.J. Wagner felt that the law that was in this text was referring to the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And the traditional Adventist understanding was that the law represented here was the ceremonial law, the types that were pointing to Christ. And so E.J. Wagner began to to also preach that, uh, uh, his views and to publish them. Both of these men were invited to the 1888 General Conference to share their views. And we'll talk a little bit more about those in a moment. But before we go to that, let's talk about two other people. Because 1888 was, there tended to be two sides to to this controversy. And the two people on the other side were George Butler and Uriah Smith. And there were others, but they tend to represent that group. Now, George Butler was the president of the General Conference at that time. He had taken over when James White died. And so he had been thrust into leadership unexpectedly. And something unfortunate and actually perhaps kind of dangerous began to happen during his time as president. And that is, remember I talked before about how these, these truths that had been developed over time after 1844, people began to take them for granted. And they were taught them, but they hadn't really studied them out for themselves. And so people began to just accept what their leaders told them without thinking, without critically analyzing and being a Berean and going back to the Bible and learning them for themselves. And so they began to look up to people like Elder Butler to think for them. 
And Elder Butler was okay with that because they would do what he would say. And so Elder Butler began to actually become, uh, he began to overestimate his authority and to, uh, to be controlling of those who were beneath him, to think for them. He forgot that there was a greater power than GC president who was guiding this, this movement. And that was, of course, God, Christ. So this kind of leads into a general conference that happened two years before 1888. In 1886, delegates who, who arrived at that general conference received a pamphlet that was written by Elder Butler. And this pamphlet was called, it was 85 pages, and it was called The Law in the Book of Galatians. Is it the moral law, or does it refer to that system of laws peculiarly Jewish? Long title, but it was written by Butler to oppose the views that E.J. Wagner had been teaching in the West Coast. During that conference as well, uh, Butler also tried to influence a committee to censure the signs of the times for publishing A.T. Jones' articles, but ultimately uh, he did not, uh, that did not go through. That was not successful. He decided not to pursue, shall we say, that, uh, that line of thinking. However, he did try to influence that committee. It's interesting to note that Ellen White was not at that conference, the 1886 General Conference. She was not there. She was in Switzerland. But she did see the conference in her night visions. So she saw what happened at that conference. And this is what she wrote to Elder Butler after 1886 General Conference. She said, I was shown the attitude of some of the ministers, yourself in particular, at that meeting. And I can say with you, my brother, it was a terrible conference. And she underlined terrible. It was terrible. And we'll come back to this later, but was she referring to the pamphlet? Perhaps. But I think she was referring to the spirit trying to influence that committee to censure the signs of the times, trying to think for people and, and, and suppress the ideas that he didn't believe in and trying to get people to do what he wanted them to do. All right. After that conference, E.J. Wagner prepared a 71-page rebuttal. It was called The Gospel in the Book of Galatians, a Review. But... He didn't publish it for a while. And one of the reasons is because he, he and uh, A.T. Jones had been reproved by Ellen White. She had written a letter, and I'd like to read parts of that letter to you because I think that this is an important learning point, even for us today, as we, as we address points of controversy between us. She wrote this to Jones and Wagner. She said, If you, my brethren, had the experience that my husband and myself have had in regard to these known differences being published in articles in our papers, you would never have pursued the course you have, either in your ideas advanced before our students at the college, neither would it have appeared in the signs. Especially at this time, should everything like differences be repressed. These young men are more self-confident and less cautious than they should be. You must, as far as difference is concerned, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
And then she said this, even if you are fully convinced that your ideas of doctrines are sound, you do not show wisdom that that difference should be made apparent. And then she goes on and says, you have now set the example for others to do as you have done, to feel at liberty to put in their various ideas and theories and bring them before the public because you have done this. These questions are not vital points, she said. And finally, she, she gave this warning. She said, begin to draw apart and feel at liberty to express your ideas without reference to the brethren and a state of things will be introduced that you do not dream of. Little did anyone know, except maybe for Ellen White, what would ensue because of these, some of these differences. This is found in 1888 materials, pages 21 through 24. Well, not only Jones and Wagner received this letter, but Ellen White gave copies to George Butler and Uriah Smith. And she intended for that it to be a warning to them, a caution to them, to not make differences of opinion prominent. Well, Butler and, and Smith took it the opposite way. They saw that she was rebuking Jones and Wagner and thought that she was validating their position and their, their doctrinal position. And so eventually she had to write them a letter as well. And this is what she said. She said, I sent this, this letter, not that you should make them weapons to use against the brethren mentioned, but that the very same cautions and carefulness be exercised by you to preserve harmony as you would have these brethren exercise. Now, I do not wish the letters that I have sent to you should be used in a way that you will take it for granted that all your ideas, that your ideas are all correct and Dr. Wagner's and Elder Jones are all wrong. Then she said, I believe now that nothing can be done but open discussion. You circulated your pamphlet. Now it is, it is only fair that Dr. Wagner should have just as fair a chance as you have had. I think the whole thing is not in God's order, but brethren, we must have no unfairness. You can read this in 1888 materials, pages 32 and 35. So this is kind of what preceded the 1888 conference. This back and forth, this making prominent of differences of opinion between Butler and Wagner. A, a brief mention of Uriah Smith. He was the secretary of the General Conference at that time. He was a respected Adventist theologian, had been there from almost the beginning. He actually supported A.T. Jones, his uh, historic re historical research, until uh, Jones began to differ with him in his interpretations, and then Uriah Smith withdrew his support of Jones. So now we come to the General Conference of 1888, one of the most famous episodes in Adventist history. Before the General Conference session, however, there was a seven-day ministerial institute beforehand. And this is where the brethren got together to study. Uh, and then after that, they would have a 19-day general conference. During the ministerial institute, A.T. Jones was asked to present his arguments for the inclusion of the Alemanni rather than the Huns in the, uh, 
the list of the ten horns in Daniel 7. And he gave a very persuasive argument. But by the end of that ministerial institute, people had begun to take sides. And there began to be a division. In fact, the common question at that time was people would come up to each other and say, are you a Hun or are you an Alemanni? And that was the spirit that was being portrayed during that time. Even Ellen White was asked uh, what she thought about the horns. And she replied, there are too many horns. That was her take on the whole situation. Now, during the general conference, E.J. Wagner was asked to present his views about righteousness by faith and the law of Galatians during their Bible study time. And uh, we will, I don't know if we'll have time to, to talk about his, what he presented there. We'll try to summarize it. But there's a few other things that we need to mention. And that is that George Butler, the president of the GC, was actually not at the GC conference at 1888. He wasn't able to make it. He had been sick for about five months and he was unable to travel. And so, in lieu of him being there, he stayed in constant communication with his, his sympathizers at the 1888 conference. And he sent them telegrams telling them what to do. He sent them telegrams saying, stand by the old landmarks or hold the fort, uh, implying that they needed to uh, support the traditional Adventist understandings at that time not necessarily that those new ideas from those upstart ministers from the West Coast. You understand what was going on? And so as E.J. Wagner presented these views, which Ellen White took great interest in and uh, listened and said amen many times, some in the group were becoming restless and alarmed at what was being presented. And so, partway through the discussions, Robert Kilgore, he was then the president of the uh, Southern Union Conference, he stood up in the middle of one of E.J. Wagner's talks, and he moved that the discussion of, of righteousness by faith be stopped until Elder Butler could be present. Trying to to stop the discussion. It was getting out of hand. Well, Ellen White was actually seated on the platform at, during that talk, and she stood up, and she said, Brethren, this is the Lord's work. Does the Lord want his work to wait for Elder Butler? The Lord wants his work to go forward and not wait for any man. Well, after that, nobody said anything. And so Elder Wagner continued his study. The next morning, Ellen White had a talk. And I want to read to you a couple, some excerpts from her talk. And you can, if you go back and read her talk, you can find it in the 1888 materials. I believe what I'm reading is from pages 32, uh, I'm sorry, from, uh, where is that? Anyway, it's in the 1880 materials. 
you can sense her frustration. And uh, this is what she said. She said, and there was very little introduction. She just got up and started basically saying this. Had Brother Kilgore been walking closely with God, he never would have walked onto, onto the ground as he did yesterday and made the statement that he did in regard to the investigation that is going on. And then to take the position that because Elder Butler was not there, that that subject should not be taken up. I know this is not of God, and I shall not feel free until I have told you. Later on, she said, Now I am full of pain as I view these things, and how can I help it? Do you think that when I see these things transpiring, that I can keep still and say nothing when these things have been shown me? I want to tell you, my brethren, that it is not right to fasten ourselves upon the ideas of any one man. You'll see that this is a common theme in her remarks. Well, you have to understand the spirit that was developing among the attendees at, at uh, the General Conference of 1888. And these facts are not as well known, but I wanted to bring them to your attention because I think it's very, very important. You know, 1888 was not just about the ten horns of Daniel or the law in Galatians. It had a lot to do with the hearts and the personalities involved and, how, and the pride that was exhibited. There were some groups among the delegates that had a different spirit. In fact, many of them were led by Conradi, whom, if you know, ev uh, eventually left the church. There was a spirit of laughter and joking, jesting among the delegates. They would make fun and criticize Wagner and even Ellen White because it seemed like she was supporting Wagner. In some of the lodges where these delegates were staying, they, began to, they were skipping group worships at night. They weren't praying anymore. There, was, there were small groups that became alarmed at the spirit that was being portrayed, and they began to pray. But by and large, the spirit was not conducive to Bible study and prayer. Believe it or not, there was even heckling occurring during E.J. Wagner's presentations. People were openly speaking out and making fun of, of Wagner, his stature, the fact that he was short. They would yell out, we can't see you, just to hurt his feelings and try to distract him. And it did hurt his feelings, but he kept on preaching. Unfortunately, no record was, no official record was ever kept of E.J. Wagner's presentations during that conference. It wasn't until later that they began to include transcripts of those in the general conference bulletins. And so all we have are eyewitness accounts, the, the, uh, the comments that Ellen White made regarding events that happened there, and a book that E.J. Wagner published shortly afterward that basically, basically contained the presentations called Christ and His Righteousness. 
and there's no way to, to summarize everything that he talked about. But perhaps this much can be said. What Ellen White called the matchless charms of Christ, that winsome message that was, was supposed to revive the church and bring us back to a true understanding of what righteousness by faith really is. It wasn't about the law. Now, the law was included, but it wasn't just the law that made it so precious. But it was the law and the truths of our church in relation to Christ. And so Wagner, when he spoke about the law, he talked about how the law pointed back to the lawgiver, the source of the law. He talked about how righteousness by faith was related to Christ, how Christ, the lawgiver, had, had come to this earth being fully God and being fully man and died for our sins to appease that law, but more importantly, to give you pardon for your sins and also to give you victory over those sins. And all of this placed together in the context of Christ was so beautiful. It melted hearts and it changed lives or had the potential to change lives if you let it. We don't have enough time to really go into some of the texts that I wanted to talk about. Let me just bring up a couple. Colossians 2 verse 9 was one of his key texts. And because we don't have time to, to, uh, to read those uh, from the audience, let me just read to you. It says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, referring to Jesus. And this was what Wagner brought up over and over again, the fact that all the fullness of the Godhead was present in Jesus. And then he, and then he would go to Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, the pertinent parts are that... It says that Christ, in verse 17, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So just as the fullness of God was dwelling in Christ, by Christ uh, dwelling in us, we also can partake of that fullness. In Ephesians 3, verse 19, it says, at the end of the verse, it says that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And we receive this fullness by Christ dwelling in us. And that's how we receive his righteousness. And and Wagner uh, waxed eloquent on the many implications of this and how we could have victory through that same faith as Christ dwelt in us. And uh, he talked about 1 John 5, 4, uh, that uh, this is a victory, even our faith, how we can have victory through that faith. All right. If you want to know more about that, you've got to read uh, Christ and his righteousness and uh, hear, read it for yourself. But uh, Ellen White endorsed these messages. And I want to read you a couple quotations that she wrote after the 1888 conference. She said, I have had the question asked, what do you think of this light that these men are presenting? Why, I have been presenting it to you for the last 45 years. The matchless charms of Christ. This is what I've been trying to present before your minds. When Brother Wagner brought these, out these ideas in Minneapolis, it was the first clear teaching on this subject from any human lips 
I have heard, accepting the conversations between myself and my husband. I have said to myself, it is because God has presented it to me in vision that I see it so clearly. And they cannot see it because they have never had it presented to them as I have. And when another presented it, every fiber of my heart said, Amen. She also said, The Lord in his great mercy. That was from a sermon in June 19, 1889. She also said, The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. And then she says this, This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the, three angels, the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. This is found in Testimonies Minister, Ministers, pages 91 and 92. She equated this message with a loud cry. And she, she said that this message was the beginning of the loud cry. And it could finish the work. However, something obviously happened because we're still here. Later in that same testimony, she wrote, For years the church has been looking to man and expecting much from man, but not looking to Jesus, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Therefore God gave to his servants a testimony that presented the truth as it is in Jesus, which is the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines. That's page 30, uh, 93. So there seemed to be two issues that were at the root of the controversy in 1888. <clears throat> and those two, if, if we can summarize those, are number one, people began to look to man, to allow themselves to be controlled by a person other than God, and not to think for themselves. That allowed people like George Butler to control the work to the point where he thought he was infallible. Ellen White said that. And she, she brought up the text when she was talking about Brother Kilgore, Isaiah 2.22, which says, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Amen. This is an important lesson I think that we can learn. To think for ourselves, to not allow one person to be our authority, but to allow God to, to, to direct our thoughts and our, and our minds as we study. But more importantly, the doctrines had become just mere theory. Many of the truths that we hold dear were abstract, and there was an intellectual assent to the truth with very little practical implication for the life. Ellen White wrote in 1890, that as a people we have preached the law until we are dry as the hills of Gilboa that had neither dew nor rain. We must preach Christ in the law and there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to the famishing flock of God. Amen. That was in Review and Herald, March 11, 1890. Look at it this way. It's like a sunset. 
Think of the most beautiful sunset that you've ever seen in your life. And you can look at it two ways. One person may look at the sunset and they can break down the colors of the spectrum and the wavelengths and how they're being filtered out to the atmosphere. And they can look at the cloud formations and they can tell you the meteorological significance of all those things, right? But they would miss the beautiful colors. They would miss the, the subtle changes in color as the, as the sun moved down the horizon. And they would miss the creator who made that sunset for your enjoyment. And that's kind of what happened. And that's what the 1888 message did. After 1888, there, after the less than enthusiastic response of the delegates in 1888, Ellen White resolved to go to the people and bring this message to the people. She spent about 13 years, from 1888 to 1901, traveling from camp meeting to camp meeting and from church to church with Jones and Wagner presenting this message to the people. And it, many revivals were started all over. However, the message never took off like it could have. Ellen White was sent to Australia in 1901. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in 1891, I'm sorry. In 1891, and Jones and Wagner never developed the momentum and they, they eventually were split apart as well. And the loud cry of the third angel never fully gained its power like it should have. Now I do want to mention that there are some groups that study this, this message quite extensively. And personally, I'm very thankful that they have brought this to the forefront of Adventist thinking. We need to know those, those things. However, I do think that some of the ideas that have come out of that, those studies, and this includes the, the idea that, that the Adventist church has corporately rejected the message and that as an organization they need to repent of that. Uh, I do not believe that that is necessarily a biblical concept. And also some of the other uh, theological concepts that have come out of that. Uh, there, uh, there are things such as forensic justification uh, the in Christ motif, some of these things, I do, I do not believe that those things uh, were necessarily part of the 1888 message. Uh, and so those, those things, I believe, are efforts to try to find what was that missing piece of 1888? Why are we not reaping the results of what the 1888 message could have started? And I believe that ultimately, when you break it down, the answer is very simple. And that is that, number one, people look to man. They don't think for themselves. They don't study that message of righteousness by faith, the matchless charms of Christ like we should. Each one of us individually needs to do that for ourselves. And we need to understand that Christ is the center of our message and look to him. Don't look to man. Ultimately, as we close up, this is my appeal to you. I, you should not have been born. I should not have been born. All right? World War I and World War II should never have occurred. AIDS and 9-11 never should have happened. The 1888 message could have finished the work. And we are still here. However, there's a new generation now. 
And we have new opportunities. You guys, are, you guys know that our church is being revived. That is being led primarily by young people. And that we are reacquainting ourselves with this message of righteousness by faith. And so someday, maybe in heaven, we'll look back on the history of this world and we'll look back at this time period as another time when Christ could have come. But right now, the question is, will it be the last time? Will this be the time where Jesus can come? The answer is up to you. And the answer is up to me. And I believe that if we are serious about learning to look to Christ, not to each other, and we are melted by the matchless charms of Christ, that we can be that generation. And I pray that we will be. Shall we pray? Dear Father in heaven, we ask that you will help us to see your matchless charms and that you will help us to be that generation that fully lives righteousness by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.